Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. And on this edition, we'll feature phantom limbs and Facebook science. But first up, here's the news with Therese Chen. Cardiovascular disease is often associated with modern factors such as a sedentary lifestyle and an unhealthy diet. However, a study published in The Lancet suggests that humans have been affected with this disease for much longer. In a prior study led by Dr. Randall Thompson, Egyptian mummies were found to have atherosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries due to the calcification of fat and cholesterol. The research team speculated that the prevalence was due to these citizens, who were able to afford the process of mummification, also possessed a less active lifestyle and more extravagant diet. And so, they decided to do further research which would span different cultures and social class. The team performed whole body CT scans of 137 mummies spanning 4,000 years from Egypt, Peru, the Aleutian Islands, and the American Southwest. Such a range of cultures also meant a contrast in diet, with there being a large variation in the indigenous plants they would have eaten, and sources of protein ranging from domesticated cattle of the Egyptians to the unicans from the Aleutian Islands predominantly having a marine source. Atherosclerosis was found in at least one-third of these mummies. A common assumption is that the rise in levels of atherosclerosis is predominantly lifestyle-related. Our findings seem to cast doubt on that assumption, and, at the very least, we think they suggest that our understanding of the causes of atherosclerosis is incomplete, and that it might be somehow inherent to the process of human aging, says Thompson. Aside from aging, the authors include other explanations for their findings. Despite the differences in time and culture, there is a common factor, the use of fire for warmth and cooking, and so the exposure to the smoke may have played a role. The inflammatory effects of atherosclerosis may have also been exacerbated by infection in pre-antibiotic civilizations, leading to further study investigating the role of immunity and genetics.
Next up, we welcome back Ed Pollitt with Science on Facebook. Thanks, Ian. It's really good to be back. I freaking love science. Look, I'm not just saying that. It's also a Facebook page. If you're on Facebook and haven't heard of it by now, you're missing out. It has over 4.3 million fans. And that's not exactly its real name, but I'll leave you to figure out what it's really called. Here's a hint. It's not freaking. Started in March 2012 by the lovely Elise Andrew, it is now the number one source for many netizens for amusing, witty and fascinating science morsels. IFLS, as it's known, covers the whole gamut of science, with short posts on the usual astronomy and biology, chemistry and climate change, and also includes quotes from well-loved scientists, along with infographics, science geek humour and more. The fascinating regular post entitled Last Week in Science is especially popular, as it details exactly six amazing things that science has achieved only in the last seven days. And trust me, it's always amazing. Elise Andrew rapidly became famous for the site, which she began in March 2011 while studying biology at the University of Sheffield, and now counts among her fans such notable scientists as Professors Richard Dawkins, Brian Cox and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Last Wednesday, for example, she was interviewed on American CBS News This Morning, along with Dr. Michio Kaku, in which they talk about women in science, and which I'll mention a little bit more about later. You can find a link to that interview on the IFLS page. I love what I do with a passion, says Elise, and I'm so grateful that social media means I can promote what I love to the whole world. I'm completely overwhelmed by how fast everything has taken off, and I'm incredibly excited about the future. Well, that future turned out pretty bright indeed. She was very soon headhunted for a science communication job at LabEx Media Group, a Canadian company that seeks to connect laboratory professionals with science resources. As stated on the IFLS Facebook page's About page, she is here for the science, the funny side of science. Quotes, jokes, memes, and anything your admin finds awesome and strange. If you take yourself seriously, you're on the wrong page. It's not hard to see why she was snapped up so readily, and why she continues to engage so many people. By the way, she also claims to speak English, Dwarvish, and Grey Elvish, and proclaims her religious views as agnostic and a unicornist, showing her delightfully playful side. She is, however, not always so light-hearted. A recent controversy arose when many of her more recent and presumably male fans discovered through her Twitter account that the page was not, in fact, run by a bloke. After being at first baffled and then somewhat outraged by the assumption, not to mention the but you're hot comments, she admirably turned the whole fiasco into a post about social science. Sadly, though, it seems that the idea of a female interested in science, however she looks, is still a surprise to some. As Elise herself tweeted shortly afterwards, Is this really 2013? As for where she will go from here, she is apparently in talks with the Science Channel, a part of American-produced Discovery Channel. We'll see where that leads. I encourage you to follow her post on Facebook, but if, if you're put off by the occasional racy language... She has thoughtfully provided, as she calls it, a child-friendly version of the site entitled Science is Awesome. You can just search Facebook for it or follow Elise Andrew on Twitter. That was Ed Pollitt, one of the many fans of Elise Andrew.
you know how to find her. Now with a slight delay due to technical problems, my recorder broke, I've got some brain awareness interviews from the Museum of Human Disease where they were showing people how to experiment with their brain. I started with Thomas Fath from the Department of Anatomy at the School of Medical Science at the University of New South Wales. I'm working here at UNSW as an academic in the Department of Anatomy, School of Medical Science, and my role is to um, cover teaching and research. And uh, my teaching is uh, largely for um, second and third year medical science students, and my research is mostly focused on uh, early development of the nervous system, uh, neuroid outgrowth, and network formation, as well as pathology in neurodegeneration. And my role here, or connection to the museum, is that we are running the International Brain Awareness Week each year, and it's an initiative from the Sydney chapter of the Society of the American Society for Neuroscience, and uh, together with Derek and the museum, we are organizing those Brain Awareness Week activities here um, at the museum. It's the International Brain Awareness Week, so it's active outreach activities now to the public in around the globe, so it's not just here in Australia, it's the same week uh, everywhere in other countries as well. Wow. Here at the Museum of Human Disease, you're showing people what their brains look like. Yeah, our aim is to really make the connection between um, the now basic building blocks of the nervous system, which are the neurons and glial cells, and how they act and work together uh, to fulfill the complex functions that we know from the nervous system. Combine that then with how the brain looks like, how it develops, and eventually then also to really get hands on how the brain functions, so to analyze uh, sensory input, how that is um, processed in the brain, how that's integrated. And so to give really students and also now today uh, activities to the uh, to an adult audience um, about what we know about the brain and what we still want to learn. So let me think. So you've been you've been showing people slides of the brain. So there's we are looking at microscope slides, uh, sections, prepared sections and stained sections of tissue. Uh, from animals and from human tissue uh, where we uh, get the opportunity to look at the smallest building block that I mentioned, the neuronal cells and glial cells. And um, the chair that you mentioned is called the Birani chair and the Birani chair is a good tool to, um, to test the vestibular uh, organ that uh, is located in the inner ear which is measuring your position in space and time. And uh, that is an ideal way to um, demonstrate uh, how that organ is working, how it sends its information to the brain. Mm. And how you can get a, I guess you, you really notice it when there's a mismatch. Yes, so um, that is more to analyze the normal function. Um, we have then also demonstrations of what can go wrong in the brain. So what we try also to demonstrate is what happens if the brain doesn't function as it should be. And we do that also from 
um, microscopic slides where we show um, things that go wrong in the brain, damage to the brain, injury to the brain, um, as well as also on models. And the um, museum is an ideal place to also show really human uh, tissue, human, real human samples uh, yes. that demonstrate that. And it's, it's pretty unusual that way, isn't it? Um, I think it's a, a unique opportunity um, to have that combination of really showing what uh, basic research is doing, what active research uh, nowadays is, and to combine that with uh, samples and demonstrations in the museum. So it is a very unique collection that we have here at the uh, museum. That's an ideal way to bring that to the public as well. Yes, yes. I mean, they just really will have trouble seeing anywhere else. Yeah. Um, so our main focus is really to engage uh, young kids, uh, kids that are still at school and yes. are still also want to look in the future what they want to do in the future and if that might be a path they want to go to. Mm. Terrific. Thank you very much. And next I spoke with Christine Froud, who is showing us 3D images. And we're looking at red-green or red, so blue. Was it red, blue or red, green? Red, blue. <laughs> red, blue, yeah. 3D images, anaglyphs. Anaglyphs, exactly, yeah. So um, both different ways of demonstrating the same principle, which is using um, your stereopsis, the principle of stereopsis, uh, or which involves basically binocular vision. And so both of those techniques are giving a slightly different image to each eye, which your visual cortex and then uh, processes and uh, because you're getting those slightly different images just slightly off, they uh, processes that to say that it's one 3D image. So that along with, in the case of the analglyphs, other cues that they include in the images such as the difference in size and distance of objects in that image um, Otherwise, the, so the monocular cues, in other words, uh, those two th uh, things together give you um, a really fantastic 3D effect. Um, the principle is the same with the stereograms or magic eye images, in that you're still taking in a slightly different image from each eye, but it's using um, repeated patterns and the uh, focus, uh, different slightly different focal points to take in. Uh, different images to each eye there, and again demonstrate the this, this stereopsis. There's um, obviously other ways that you can use 3D. The way that they do that in the cinema these days is using the uh, polarisation glasses rather than coloured filtering glasses. Um, but the idea is the same as with the colour filtering. There's issues with each, but uh, <laughs> namely with the polarisation that when you move the glasses and the polarization goes wrong and yeah and that sort of thing's a problem with that but um so basically you can see 3d on your computer screen either by using the red blue glasses or by having the magic eye images yes yeah exactly so um i think the the magic eye which is really quite striking but it's more difficult for a lot of people to see at least anyone can see the analglyphs so yes. <laughs> that's um that's an easy yeah. Well, thank you very much. And that was Christine Froud, another public officer at the Museum of Human Disease. And last, I spoke with Bridget Murphy, who used to be a presenter on 
Diffusion Science Radio before she moved on to bigger and better things. Here's Bridget explaining how you could experiment with your brain. Tonight is the public night for Brain Awareness Week. Get into your headspace. And so what have you been showing people? Uh, today in the museum we've got a few interactives set up. Um, we have a whole, well the first thing we did was a brain dissection. So this afternoon we walked down to Randwick Butchers and picked up a whole lot of frozen sheep brains. And so all of our, well, some of our visitors today have been dissecting brains um, from sheep and looking at all the different structures of the brain and looking at the different functions. There are a few other stations around the museum that are looking at the uh, comparative anatomy of the brain, so looking at the anatomy in different animals, so looking at how that develops over time. Uh, there's also microscopes set up looking at sections of the brain, so you can look at the cellular structure of the brain, which is quite impressive. And we've got a few interactives where we're literally messing with your brain. <laughs> so um, one of the ones that we've got is where we get the uh, victims or volunteers to sit down and we dress them up in a lab coat and they have two, their hands out on the table, palms up, but there's also a third fake hand. So the idea is to stimulate one of their hands, which is hidden by a box, and as well as stroking the fake hand. And over time, that retrains their brain to think that the feeling that is felt on their hidden hand is actually because of what they can see on the fake hand. So people get some quite trippy sort of sensations from that. That's right. I had to play with it when it was at the directed this at the powerhouse. Ah, okay. Cool. And yes, it felt like it was my hand. Yeah. But I didn't flinch away when it went someone went with a hammer. Oh, okay. <laughs> Despite the fact that it really felt like my hand. Yeah, everyone yeah. reacts differently to it. So some people really believe it and you know it doesn't take them long before they really believe it's their hand. And, you know, if you go to stab it with a knife or hit it with a hammer, they really do flinch and try and pull their hand away. Terrific. So, yeah. There's also another activity that we've got set up mm. where we have, um, we call them vibrators, not yes. in the sense that people might otherwise think, but they're literally sort of a, um, a probe which vibrates. And if you place it on um, the insertion points of particular muscles, you can mm -hmm. cause those muscles to contract. And so that also messes up with your um, proprioception, proprioception where you're you know, your brain can tell where different limbs are and different parts of your body are in space. Mm. And so there's a particularly good one where you get people to try and touch their nose when you're stimulating that tricep insertion point and they never quite get to that point where they can touch their nose. So it's a lot of people laughing. That was, that was really odd. I mean, I tried that and it started to feel like my hand was moving away and then it almost felt like it, my hand wasn't anywhere in space. It's hard to know where it was at all. Yeah, exactly. So what, what happens is that causing that muscle to contract, your brain thinks that that muscle is more flexed than it is. And of course, when your tricep is flexed, your elbow is bent and your finger should be pretty close to your nose. But if your brain thinks it's more flexed than it is, then your finger is actually a lot further away from your nose than your brain thinks. So often what you get is a whole lot of people trying to push their nose forward to touch their finger rather than the other way around. And we had a look at some stereo 3D stuff in the far room as well. Ah uh, yeah, like magic eye yes. pictures. Yes. So I don't know much about them to That's tell all right. the truth. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've been going cross-eyed a lot over the last couple of days preparing a lot of those pictures. 
and going back to my youth of looking through, you know, hundreds and hundreds of Magic Eye books. Well, so. Bridget Murphy, thank you very much. And that was Bridget Murphy at the Museum of Human Disease for getting to your headspace, experimenting with your brain. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3, and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And with me in the studio is Ed Pollitt. Ed, tell me about the Galaxy Zoo. Uh, Galaxy Zoo, for those of you who don't know, uh, is a sort of crowdsourcing classification type website. Um, it originally started, as the name suggests, um, they were getting the public to classify different types of galaxies, as in spiral galaxies, barred spiral galaxies, elliptical galaxies. I recently went back to it, and I'm amazed at how much they've diversified. Uh, for example, the among the space sites that you can uh, take part in, you can explore the surface of the moon and study... Uh, explosions on the sun or as any space geeks would know coronal mass ejections they're called so basically just for people who really haven't come across this before so Mm. for the galaxy zoo you're getting images from telescopes images from the kepler images from the kepler telescope yeah and you can look at these and they're asking you to classify what type of galaxies and what type of phenomena are on there yeah that's right um you're presented with an image it's all very very well done very easy for anyone, who, not even space geeks like myself, to get into. Uh, you're presented with an image, and first of all, you just say, is this elliptical or spiral? And it's quite easy to make that decision. Then if it's elliptical, there's not much more you can describe about that galaxy. An elliptical galaxy is a spherical formation of stars. You know, it'll go into more and more detail. You know, is it barred spiral? Is it edge on? Is it clockwise, anti-clockwise? That sort of thing. Quite interesting. But yeah, but as I was saying, now you can explore the surface of the moon, Mars. The one I'm really interested in at the moment is finding exoplanets, planets outside of our solar system. And this is basically you look at the radio signal from a star. And often they're very, fairly variable. So if you can imagine like a sine wave, that would be a, quite a, a normal star. But occasionally you get, say, an eclipsing binary, which looks fascinating on this screen. Uh, it's a very tight, wiggly line, but yeah, fascinating. But when you happen to come across an image that has a little dip every so often, I get chills. And it's exciting because you can be actually credited as among the discoverers, group of discoverers of that exoplanet, if it turns out it is one. So I encourage you to go and see it. The website is actually planethunters.org. It's part of the galaxy Zooniverse, as they call it. Would you know if they've started naming any exoplanets yet? No, no. They're in fact discovering them at such a rate that they really only have the catalogue names so far. Uh, I believe you can suggest a name. I might be wrong about that, but... Yeah, well, certainly you can have your name associated and maybe they'd consult the people who are credited with discovering them when they decide on names. I think there is something along those lines, yeah. Anyway, look, this really excites me. 
I love it. And it's especially exciting how they're engaging the public. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people taking part in this all across the world. And it's great. All you need is a computer. How much training do you think someone would need to start being productive that way to recognize? When you say a bump, for example, are mm. you looking at the spectrum? It's, or what are you looking at when you see a bump? It's, it's the emissions pretty much in the radio band of the right. spectrum. So in amongst the, it's, it's plots of data points on a scale. So you've got the graph, graph of data points mm. and they form a pattern. That's right. Bump. Yep. And the bump means there may be a planet. It's more of a dip. A dip. Actually, in, yeah. Because uh, what you're looking at is what they call transiting exoplanets. So you're looking at the light from the star in the radio frequency and lots and lots of little dots that form sort of a, like I said, a wave. And you can, using the software on the website, you can expand the graph and get right down into the nitty detail. And you see a couple of little spots, say, every 15 days or something like that. That would indicate a sizable planet very close to the star. And due to the nature of the method, that's pretty much the only types of systems that we can discover at the moment. What you actually see is a little dip in the data points. So to answer your question, you have to be just a modicum of discerning if I can put it that way. But it's very, very easy to learn. They do step you through it very gently, and it's very, very public-friendly, if I yeah. can put it that way. Sounds like something that schools and universities should be getting the students involved with. Yes, they do. They even have a way for schools and universities to interact with the Galaxy's universe. Uh, you can find that on the page. I can't remember the exact link. Oh, that's all right. We'll yeah. put it up on diffusionradio.com, and people can click it and Great. start I must warn you. Out. Must warn you, it's very addictive. <laughs> Before you know it, you'll be like 50, 100 classifications in and it's time to go to bed. There you go. You can explore the universe and still have time before you need to go back to bed. Mm. Thank you, Ed. My pleasure. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send your congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Therese Chen and Ed Pollitt. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.